that we are in uh, sister churches in partnership with here in the, the Grand Rapids area. And I haven't been here in a little while, but it's great to see you again. Great to be back with you. And actually, I'm not here that often, and I'm hardly ever here on a Sunday where your pastors, John and Lindsay, are actually here. And so I want to take just a second and just say uh, in front of all of you guys just how incredibly proud I am of both of you and the job you guys are doing in leading this church and this community. Do you guys get it, how blessed you are to have great young leaders like this, like John and Lindsay and the way that they're leading here? Um, so I just want to say thank you guys for the way you are leading this church to reach out to this community here in Byron Center, to welcome the community of Byron Center, and to serve the community of Byron Center. It's amazing to me that just some of the serving projects even you guys have been a part of over the last few weeks here in this area. And so thank you guys for all you're doing, and it's just exciting to be a part of this ministry with you. And uh, we're not done yet. I, I think you guys know that. We're just getting started. In fact, I think this next year is going to be a major year in the life of uh, this church, Center Church, and as it relates to the community that we're reaching out to. And actually, that's what I want to talk about a little bit this morning. If you're just joining us or haven't been here over the last few weeks, we're in a series right now uh, at all three of our um, churches that are in partnership together. And uh, the series is called Road Trip. And we're talking about uh, these different cities that you see in the New Testament. Maybe you've tried to read the New Testament and you've noticed names like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. But maybe what you didn't realize is those are actual letters that were written by a guy named Paul to these actual people in actual places in the first century world. And so today we're going to look at the city of Colossae. We're going to talk about the, the biblical book of Colossians, and we're going to talk about what was going on. We're going to take a road trip to that area and talk about what was happening in that city, what was the context of that, and why did Paul say what he said to that particular group of people. Uh, so when I was seven years old, uh, my, I had a younger sister. She was six years old, a year younger than me, and we grew up on the west side of Indianapolis in the suburbs there of the Indianapolis area. And so one day, we're in a, the backyard, my sister and I, and she announces, she says, I'm going to run away from home. And literally, we, we had this like fenced-in backyard, and with that, she just walks over, opens the gate, and she just walks out of our backyard. Uh, and now I didn't really want to run away from home. That wasn't what I was wanting to do at that moment. But I, I literally, to this day, I hold to this uh, statement. I felt like because I was the bigger, older brother, I had to go along to protect her. That's what I felt like. And so I remember walking to the gate, opening it, and just walking straight out of our backyard of our house at that time. And we, my sister and I began to just wander through the neighborhoods on the west side of Indianapolis there. And it was actually a pretty boring time. Nothing all that exciting happened. We cut through some people's yards. We said hello to a few dogs, you know, stuff like that. But, but nothing really all that exciting happened. And so finally, after a period of time, my sister was like, well, why don't we just go home? And we were not that far away from home. We knew the neighborhood well enough. We thought, okay, well, we know basically how to get back home. And so we walked back home. And when we got to our house, our yard, there was this huge commotion going on. And I remember as, as we walked in, as we walked closer, like people jumped up, people were clapping and cheering, people were hugging us, people were crying, they were so happy to see my sister and I. It was awesome, uh, at least until they left and then the whoopings began, you know. Um, you will never do that again. But at this period of time, there was this huge celebration and what, I, what we discovered is that for over an hour, apparently we had been lost. 
We, I didn't know we were lost. I didn't feel like we were lost, but apparently for over an hour, we had been lost. My mom and dad at some point in that period of time had come out into the backyard to a very quiet backyard, a very empty backyard. And my mom had seen the gate standing open as she had realized my kids are lost. And so the police had been called and they had responded. The neighbors, at the time when we came back, there were still neighbors out in the neighborhoods calling our names. Strangely enough, we never heard them. They were walking all through the neighborhoods yelling for us. Other friends had been called. People had gathered around. And so the only way I knew that I was lost was because there was a search that had been made. There was a rescue operation that had been called out on our behalf. That's the only way I knew we were lost. I didn't think we were lost. The search said two things for me to me. One, the first thing it said was, you were lost. You just didn't realize it. The second thing the search, the rescue operation said to me was, you are valuable. When you go missing, it calls this all-out search. People get out of their chairs. They go searching. They go looking for you because you're that valuable when you're lost. So here's the question I, I want to invite us to ask this morning as we look at this passage, go ahead and put that on the screen there. The question is, do your neighbors, friends, and family know they are valuable to God? Do, as you think about your life, your circle of relationships, do your friends, do your family, do the, do the people that you work with, do they know that they are incredibly dearly loved and valuable to God? I would propose to you, unless someone is out searching for them, Probably not. Probably not. None of us probably really realize that unless there's some kind of a search being made. As you come to the, the book of Colossians, as, as we begin to think about the city of Colossae and what was happening at the time when Paul wrote this letter, uh, go ahead and put that map up on the screen just to give you kind of a, a, an idea of where the road trip is taking us. If you see right there, you see Colossae, but just to the left, you notice um, Ephesus right there. So if you read the book of Acts, what happened was Paul came uh, on his first missionary journey and he spent three years in the city of Ephesus preaching the gospel, leading people to Christ. People were getting baptized. People were coming to know Jesus. There was a church that was started there. And in the church in Ephesus, there was this guy named Epaphras. And Epaphras became a disciple of Jesus. He accepted the message of Christ and he became a follower of Christ. And then after a period of time, Epaphras went 120 miles to the east and he went to the area of Colossae, this, and, and it was a small town at this time. Ephesus was like the big city. Colossae was like the small town. And he went 120 miles to the east, to the city of Colossae, and he began to preach the gospel, and people began to get saved, and there began to be a church then that formed in the city of Colossae. It formed right, the city of Colossae was right on this Lycus River Valley trading route. It was this huge trading route that went through the ancient world. And so what I want you to see with that is the gospel message never stayed in one place. As you read about the early church, the gospel message never stayed just in this one place, just with this group of people. Paul goes to Ephesus, Epaphras goes to Colossae, and Colossae is right on this major trade route where it can keep going. The gospel always went searching for the next group of people. There was always this impetus to say, okay, we've got the gospel, we've got the message of Christ, where's the next group of people? Where's the next group of people who need to be set free by the person of Jesus, who need to get saved? Where are they? And they went searching for the next group of people. Over and over again, you see that in the early church. 
And what, the thing I love the most about the book of Colossians is the way that Paul describes the gospel. So Paul was in Rome. That's all the way up there to the top left. Paul was at, in house arrest actually in Rome, but he could still receive guests. He could still write letters. And he writes a letter to the church in Colossae that had been started there. And the thing I love the most about it is the way he describes the gospel. Listen to this, Colossians 1, starting in verse 13. He describes it this way. He says, for he, God, has rescued us. Let's just say those two words together. For he has what? Rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. So there's something about what Jesus did on the cross that purchased our freedom, that paid the price and forgave our sins and bought us back. And the way Paul describes it, go ahead to that next slide. He describes the cross as a rescue operation. He says, you've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and you've been transferred into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased your freedom on the cross and paid for your sins. That's how he describes the gospel as this dramatic rescue operation. Now, why does that matter? The reason that matters is because you and I don't basically walk around most of the time feeling like we need to be rescued. Do we? I mean, if you think about your life, you think about most of the people you know, we don't walk around thinking, man, I, if only someone would rescue me. That's not what we think. That, that's not how we think about our lives. It was actually uh, Frederick Buechner um, who said that the, before the gospel can be good news, it actually has to be bad news. And, and what he meant by that is we're lost. A lot of times we just don't know it. Just like my sister and I wander around, we, we, just, we don't even realize that we as people are broken, that the sin that's in our lives, the, the things that creep up that we can't control, those things have separated us from God and that we can't fix ourselves. We can't fix our own brokenness. No matter how good we try to be, that we as individuals are hopelessly lost and broken. And, and we live in a, as a human race in brokenness and loss. I mean, you think about even this past week, as more shootings happen, I mean, our world is broken, isn't it? And we live in the midst of a time that, uh, where we recognize there are things that are broken in our world, broken within the human heart that we just can't seem to get our, our hands around. We just can't seem to fix. And that's our situation. And so in, in actuality, what we, what we don't believe, we don't really believe that our situation is that bad. We don't realize how lost we really are. And we also don't believe that God could actually be that good. That he would love us enough and would consider us valuable enough that he would go searching in a rescue operation to redeem and to buy us back and to save us. But that's exactly what the gospel is. Jesus didn't die so that you could behave a little bit better. A lot of times we think about that. Well, I go to church and I, I listen, you know, I try to get more Jesus in my life. So, cause then he'll help me be a better person. Well, yes, he will. That's true. But he didn't die on the cross so that you would behave a little bit better. He died on the cross because you were dead and your transgressions and your sin, and you needed to be rescued from your old life and you needed to be given an entirely new life. And Jesus is the only one who can do that. That's the gospel message. That's what Paul is talking about. And I love this. What he does is throughout, I'm just gonna hit kind of the highlights here, but he goes through kind of the layout of the rescue operation for the next few um, 
the next couple of chapters of the book of Colossians. So in chapter 2, verse 6, he talks about receiving Jesus as Lord. That the way we step into this rescue is we actually come to this place where we say, Jesus, I confess my sins. I'm a sinner. I can't fix myself. And I confess you as Lord of my life. We actually, talk, we actually receive Jesus as Lord of our lives. And then in verse 12, he talks about getting baptized. Because the next step you take in the rescue operation is you get baptized. That we've been buried with Christ in baptism. That when we go down the water, it's the symbol that we've died to our old lives to trying to fix ourselves. And when we come out of the water, it's this symbolic way of saying, I'm raised to this new life in Jesus. I've been rescued. And then in 13 through 15, he talks about learning your new identity from the cross. And he literally says, you were dead, and now Jesus has made you alive through what he did on the cross. And then verses 16 through 23, he says, don't let anybody suck you back into the traditions of man. So don't let anybody suck you back into living by a bunch of rules, religious rules that basically make you uh, on sort of like a ladder trying to get to God, trying to figure out how can I do enough good works to get me to God. He says, don't let people suck you back into that. And then uh, in chapter three, he says, be transformed by your new identity in the way that you live. The language he actually uses there is put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, greed, idolatry, whatever it is, put that stuff to death and clothe yourselves with Christ, with the person of Jesus. And then in, in verse 11, he makes this incredible statement. He says, learn to see Christ in everyone. In fact, I'm gonna read you verse 11 because it's just that powerful. Colossians 3.11, as he's describing the, the completeness of this rescue operation, Paul says, in this new life in Jesus, it does not matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, if you're circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. A simple way to just describe this, uh, if, if you're looking for something to write down, go ahead to that next statement there. Um, is Jesus transforms the way we see ourselves and then he transforms the way we see others. That's what happens. As we're rescued by Jesus, he begins to transform our lives and then what happens is we begin to see everyone else through the lens of our rescue. We begin to see everyone else in our lives through the lens of this rescue operation that God has done. It's an inside-out transformation that radiates out to others. So what happens is we begin to see other people different. Suddenly other people are transformed from opponents, you know, enemies in our lives, or competition where we feel jealous toward them, or people that basically we're trying to use in our lives. They're transformed into dearly, beloved brothers and sisters who are in need of the same kind of rescue that we needed. That's how we begin to see other people in our world. It's how, it's how God transforms us and then we begin to see other people in our lives. Paul goes on in that and he, he continues to describe this and he gives an example in chapter uh, four of Colossians. He begins to take one of those relationships that gets transformed and he begins to dig a little bit deeper into it. And so he talks about the relationship between masters and slaves. So go ahead and put that, that verse up there if you could. Thanks, Rue. Um, so after saying, hey, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a slave or if you're a free person, Christ is all that matters and Christ lives in all of us. Then in chapter four, verse one, he says, masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. 
Now, just to be really clear here, Paul is not uh, condoning slavery. He's not hey, saying, hey, slavery, thumbs up. That's a really great idea. What he's doing here is he's simply acknowledging a situation that existed in the city of Colossae. What we know is that at the time Paul wrote this letter, somewhere between 30 to 50% of the citizens of Colossae would have been slaves. They were on this major trade route in the ancient world. It was a very common thing. Slavery was normal. It was very common. And in that city in particular, there was a high percentage of people that were slaves. There's actually uh, accounts of poor families would regularly sell their children into slavery to rich families. Like thinking that this was a help, like this was a good thing. We're going to try to get, this is a way to provide for our kids. And so it was very common for a wealthy family to have slaves. It was even uh, people who were not wealthy oftentimes had slaves that they owned. And that, that practice of that right along that trade route was a, was a very common thing. And so Paul is speaking to that and he reorders that whole relationship around the person of Jesus. And he speaks to masters and he says, don't you forget, you've got a master in heaven. So Jesus is Lord. He's transformed your life. And so now that, that applies even to the slaves in your household. That applies to anybody you see. We all have a master. The ground is level at the foot of the cross and we don't see each other through our old ways of seeing. We see other people through the rescue operation that redeemed us. That's what Paul's saying. See people through that lens. And that's, that's what he calls masters and slaves to. Now, what's really interesting about that is that in the New Testament, there's a second book and it's called the, the book of Philemon. It's actually just one chapter. It's super short. Paul wrote the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon from the city, from house arrest in Rome, right about the same time. The book of Colossians was written to the church in Colossae. The book of Philemon was written to a guy who was in the church in, in um, Colossae. His name was Philemon. And here's what we know about Philemon, and here's what we know about why Paul wrote this short personal letter to this guy named Philemon. Philemon was a Roman citizen who lived in the city of Colossae. So he was kind of the top of the pecking order. Philemon also was a, uh, a very wealthy man. What we know is that the way Paul addresses him is the church in Colossae actually met in his house. So Philemon was the leader of the church in Colossae. They, the church literally met in his home, in his very large house he would have had as a very wealthy Roman citizen living in Colossae. The other thing we know about Philemon is he was a slave owner, as a lot of people were in that culture in that time. And so he owned slaves, and he had a slave by the name of Onesimus. And apparently, this guy Onesimus, uh, something happened between he and Philemon, some sort of break of relationship, and somehow Onesimus escaped from the, the church there in Colossae, from Philemon's house in Colossae, and somehow Onesimus made it all the way to Rome where he somehow met Paul, and when he met Paul, it's, it's not until that moment that he heard the message about Jesus and he receives Jesus as Lord and his life is transformed. He's rescued by God. And so what Paul does is he, and after Onesimus accepts Christ, he writes this letter, the letter of Philemon, back to, the, to Philemon in Colossae and sends that letter back with Onesimus and he says, uh, Philemon, I want you to welcome Onesimus back to the church and I want you to welcome him this time as your brother. He's no longer a slave. He no longer belongs to you. He's your brother. Welcome him back as such. He's your brother in Christ. 
which is pretty intense if you think about what that would have meant in that time. Now, I don't think you're getting this yet. So could you put that map back up on the, on the screen there? Uh, because I, I think sometimes it's worth just kind of visually seeing this to point it out. So let, let's get this straight. Here in, the, in Colossae, you see Colossae right there on the map. In Colossae is where you have Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus is in the church in Colossae. And the reason I know that is because the church met in Philemon's house. He's literally a slave in the house where the church met, and he never hears the gospel. He doesn't get Jesus in Colossae, in the church. He never hears, he never hears the gospel message. He has to go all the way to Rome. See Rome at the very, very top left, at the end of the ancient world at that time is the way they thought about it. He literally had to go to the ends of the earth to meet Paul in house arrest in prison before he finally heard the good news of the rescue operation, the gospel of Jesus. He finally heard it in Rome. And, and Paul says, well, now that you've heard this, you need to go back, Onesimus, to the church in Colossae. And, and finally, I want you to welcome him back as your brother. Now, there, there are a few different theories as to how Onesimus got all the way to Rome. Some people believe that because of what Paul says in the book of Philemon in his letter to him, some people believe that, that what happened was Onesimus stole money from his slave master, Philemon, and he just escaped and ran away. And somehow, we don't really know how, but somehow magically he found his way all the way to Rome and managed to find Paul in house arrest in Rome. Uh, other people say that's pretty far-fetched. That, that's, that seems like a pretty long stretch that he would just sort of wander around the ancient world and find Paul in Rome. And so there's another group of people, and I'll just be honest, I actually think this is probably more accurate too. There's another group of people who say, no, actually the way Onesimus made his way to Paul in Rome is he and Philemon had a falling out. Philemon got mad at Onesimus and decided he didn't want him anymore as a slave. And so because they were on this trade route, what he did is he sent Philemon to Paul in Rome Paul was on house arrest. He could receive guests and visitors. And he sent Onesimus to Paul in Rome so Paul could sell him as a slave in Rome. Why would he do that? What we know is that Rome at this time had the highest slave trade market of any city in the ancient world. You could quite literally get more money for slaves, selling a slave in Rome than you could have any other city. So what we think is that Philemon actually sent Onesimus to Paul in Rome and to support Paul. So Paul could then take Onesimus, sell him on the slave trade market, get, and then get some money to support himself there on house arrest in Rome. <laughs> and instead of doing that, Onesimus comes to him, and instead of selling him as a slave, Paul leads the guy to Christ. Hey, have you heard about Jesus? <laughs> and he leads him to Christ and then sends him back as a full brother in the Lord, welcome him back to the church in Colossae. Now, by this point, if you've been paying attention at all, you're sitting there saying to yourself, man, that Philemon guy must be a jerk, right? Can we admit that in church? We, we think that, or I mean, the, I, I don't know about you. I mean, you read that and you think about it. Man, this guy Philemon, he must have been a jerk. But actually, before you think Philemon was a bad guy, I want you just to listen to how Paul addresses Philemon. This is the way he talks to him. Again, remember, it's just one chapter long. So this is verse four through seven of Philemon. Paul says this to Philemon. I always thank my God when I pray for you. Yeah, you can go ahead and put, oh, oops, looks like something went down. I'll just listen to me as I read it. I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. 
And I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. Here's what I want you to see with that. Philemon had faith. He had faith in Jesus. He just missed it when it came to Onesimus. Philemon was generous to the poor. That statement about your kindness has refreshed the hearts of God's people, that's a reference, we think, to financial uh, giving. He was generous. He gave regularly. He just missed it when it came to Onesimus. Philemon loved God's people. He, he says that right there in those verses. Paul says he was a guy who loved God's people. He just missed it when it came to Onesimus. That's what happened here in this scenario. And so what, what's happening is Paul is, is saying, you need to pay attention to how this one person has somehow escaped under your radar. The gospel applies to him too because it transforms us, and then it begins to transform the way we see others. Philemon was actually a great guy. He was saved. He was redeemed. He was a leader of the church, but the gospel hadn't done its full work in his life. It hadn't transformed the way he was seeing others, particularly this guy Onesimus. Um, My sister and I found our way back on our own. I could take you back to that story, the west side of Indianapolis when I'm seven years old. We got bored after an hour and a half or something like that, and we decided to go home, and we pretty much knew the way home. I mean, it wasn't that hard to figure out. We basically could find our way back home by ourselves. I was a brother back then. I am a parent now, and uh, my wife and I have four boys, and our third son, Aaron, has autism, and so There was a period of time, actually, we still have some struggles with this every once in a while, but there was a period of time in our family when when our boys were younger where Aaron was a flight risk. So I'm not kidding you at all. We would go to anywhere public, and there would be this this heart-wrenching moment where literally you feel like you're going to have a heart attack, where I would look around and, and like Aaron would just be gone. He'd just disappear in the middle of some public place. And social settings just sort of uh, ramped him up. He had a hard time with groups of people. And so he literally would just leave. And he would just like walk across the street without looking. I mean, that's the kind of stuff he would do. And so we'd be in public somewhere and I'd look around. And if you weren't watching him at every second, all of a sudden I'd realize he's gone. Aaron's gone. And so when that happened, I would hit the panic button, much like my mom when she saw the gate open. And, and I would just freak out. And I'd, say, and I'd say to my other boys, go look for your brother. Get up, go run, go look for him. I remember like I would run across the street. I would interrupt total strangers and ask if they'd seen him. I mean, I was like a crazy person until we found him. Now, in that moment, in those moments when that happened, it's not that I loved my other three boys any less. I mean, if they were to stop me in that moment and say, Dad, we're still here. (laughs) Three out of four isn't bad, right, Dad? I mean, don't don't you love us? Don't we still matter to you? If I could have stopped and taken a moment and answered that, what I would have said is, of course you matter to me. Of course I love you the same as I love him, but you're not lost. And unlike your brother, I know he will not find his way back on his own. 
he won't figure that out on his own. If someone does not go and find him, he is gone. Literally. Here in Byron Center, there are people who are lost. And there are some of them, to be very honest with you, they will find their way back on their own. They'll figure it out. They'll have enough relationships, enough context in their life. They're, they're going to find their way back to God on their own. There are other people here in Byron Center that, that you know, people that, that you're in a circle of relationship with, family, friends, neighbors, whatever it is, and they are lost, and the reality is they will not find their way back on their own. And if there's not a search being made, they won't have a clue what, how desperately they're in need of rescue. That's, that's where we come in. That's where we as a church come in. We as a church do not exist just for the people who will find their way back on their own. If they happen to find us, that's great. We exist as a church for the people who will not find their way back unless someone is searching for them. And we will search. That's what we're about as a church. And we'll keep searching until zero people are lost. So as the band comes up and as, as we think about, okay, where does this land in our lives? How does this message to this ancient group of people in Colossae, how does this guy Philemon and his slave Onesimus, how does that even apply to us? What does that have to say to us this morning? I, I would encourage you to, to ask this question. Do we have the screen back? Yeah. What, what does it mean for you to raise your level of rescue urgency for one person? I'm not asking you to go save the city of Byron Center. You can't do that anyway. Only Jesus can save people. A lot of times we, we make it way more complicated than it needs to be. I'm simply asking you to ask yourself, who is your Onesimus? Who is your one person in your relational world that you've just missed? It doesn't mean you're a bad person. You love Jesus. You're generous to the poor. You're a leader. You're a... You're a person who loves God's people, but you've just missed it with this person. Who is it? It's a brother, somebody in your own family, father or mother. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's somebody who your kids play sports with. It's a friend in school. If you're honest with yourself, you know they are lost and there is no way they're finding their way back on their own. What does it look like for you to raise your urgency, your rescue urgency for that person? You don't have to be weird about it. What does it look like for you to just invest in their life, to give them a call and just say, hey, I've been thinking about you. I've been wondering what's going on in your life. And just, I've been wondering if we could just uh, get together sometime for coffee. I've been wondering, even if, even if it's just, I wonder, what it would look like if, you, if you'd be open to coming to church with me? What would it look like for you to go be part of the rescue operation, be part of the search and rescue operation? Because I'm here to tell you, the greater the search, the greater the celebration when the person is found. The greater we're involved in the rescue operation, the greater our own level of joy and celebration goes up in our lives. 
See, Paul wasn't writing this letter to Philemon and sending Onesimus back to Philemon because he wanted to like rub it in Philemon's face and punish him. He was sending him back because Paul knew, man, for Philemon, there's something more God has for him. There's something more God wants to do in his life. So he sends Onesimus back, not just for Onesimus, but for Philemon as well. Who is your Onesimus? What does it look like for you to raise your level of rescue urgency for that one person? I'll close with this. This is the last thing Paul says in this letter to the Colossians before he, before he does his final greetings. This is the last like command he gives them. Uh, Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6 says this. He closes his whole letter to them talking about this gospel message that's a rescue operation that keeps going and searching, keeps looking for the next group of people, the next group of people, the next group of people. Who is the one that has not been reached yet? And in verse five, he says, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Those people who are lost in your relation world, they're not a burden. They're not your burden. You can't fix them. They are your greatest opportunity for the gospel to become complete in your life. He says, let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. And in the 21st century, I I would just say, let your Facebook and social media conversations also be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Do you see what Paul was aiming them at? You've been rescued. You, You may not have even known you were lost until you realize this rescue operation was underway for you and you've been rescued and now it's transformed everything else in your life. Now you be on mission. You be part of this rescue operation. Would you stand with me? We're gonna pray. So Lord Jesus, what I, what I would just end with, I guess first and foremost, as we were just singing about a few minutes ago, thank you that you saved us. There was this great chasm between us and a high mountain that we could not cross, a high valley that we couldn't get across. And by the cross, by your resurrection, you saved us. You came to this world as a savior because we needed to be saved. And so first and foremost, we thank you for that. We thank you that for grace, we thank you for mercy when we've sinned, when we've broken uh, our own relationship with you, God. We thank you that you transform us. And so what I'm asking, God, I pray that in in the mind of every one of us here this morning, would you place the name of a person? Some of us, we've already got that person in our head. For others of us, maybe we don't have a person right now. So my prayer would be, God, would you give them that name this next week? Would you speak?